I read this week a story that Erwin Lutzer wrote about in a thing that took place that he recorded. Uh, there was a large multi-million dollar project that was being done. And there were several contractors that were contacted and given the opportunity to place a bid for this contract and for this job. And because it was a multi-million dollar project, uh, it was a big project financially for the contractor as well. One of the contractors who was submitting a bid, who was invited to submit a bid, it would have been a job that would have secured his place as a contractor. It would have been a bid that would have, a job that would have taken him from a struggling contractor to a, a steady com, uh, contractor with uh, a stabilized position. And so this job meant more to this contractor really in the essence and the scope of things than it did the other contractors that were placing their bids. And so he put forth so much effort in, in trying to make sure that he was fair in his contract, but also making sure that, that he would make a profit in his contract as well. But he also wanted to make sure that he was the lower bidder. So he did everything possible to, to make sure that he was the lowest bid. He arrived at the time of his appointment to see the boss of this project and to turn his bid into the boss. And the secretary showed him into the boss's office and gave him a seat there in front of the boss's desk. As he sat there waiting for the boss to come in, he saw right on the table, on the desk in front of him, with nothing really blocking his view, the competition's bid. And he didn't want to look at the bid, but yet he began to think about what this bid would mean for his business. And so he stood up and walked away from the bid and, and didn't look at the bid. He began to walk back and forth, but he began to think about his future and what it would mean if he was able to obtain that contract. So he started edging closer to the desk and he looked and started looking at the competition's bid and seeing some things, but they didn't have any numbers written by everything that they had written down. But then at the bottom of the page, it said total bid. And right over that was a pop can. He couldn't look. He was afraid to look. But as he waited, no one came in. And he thought, you know what? If I just sneak a quick peek, I can adjust my bid to be lower and I'll be sure that I get this bid. This could mean the future of my business right here. And so he took one final look around and he grabbed that pop can to move it out of his way. And as soon as he picked up that pop can, the bottom fell out of it. And a million BBs went everywhere. Onto the floor, across the desk, and it made that sound that only spilling BBs can make. And he realized that it was a trap. He realized it was a test. And he realized at that very instant that he had failed the test. And there were some consequences that were unforeseen at the time that took place. This morning, we continue our journey through the book of Genesis. And we find ourselves this morning in Genesis 3, 
verses 14 through 19. And in this passage this morning, we see the unforeseen consequences that Adam and Eve faced as well. Just as they looked at that fruit and it was good for food and they took of that food of that fruit and they did eat of that fruit, once those BBs were out of the can, they could not be put back in. And we see the consequences here in this passage. And so this morning, we're going to begin looking at the curse. Now open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 3 and find verse 14. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. And when you find verse 14, if you would stand with me, I'll read it aloud and you can follow along with me in your copy of the Scriptures. Genesis 3, verse 14. Genesis 3, verse 14, and God's Word reads this way. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Father, we're thankful this morning for your word. Father, thankful for the opportunity that we have to sit under your word. And we pray, Father, this morning, as we listen to your word, that your word would speak to our hearts, that it would be your word, Lord, and your word only that we would hear. And so, Father, I pray that when we leave here this morning, we can say that we've heard from you. And so, Lord, just take my mind and my tongue and my heart And just allow me to share what you'd have us to hear. Nothing more, Father, but certainly nothing less either. And it's in your Son's name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at this passage this morning, there are four points here that kind of lead us through this section. The first thing we see is the curse on the serpent. The second thing we see is the curse on Satan. The third thing we see is the curse on the woman. And the fourth thing we see is the curse on the man. Now, as we dive into this passage this morning, we are just going to look at the first two points. The first point is the curse on the serpent. And we see that in verse 14. It says this in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent. So as we look at this verse here, and as we see this begin to take place, we see God speaking to the serpent to begin with. The serpent was the last one that was mentioned in the blame game that we saw last time we were together. Remember God questioned Adam, and he said, "Ah, blame her, 
And God questioned Eve, and he, she said, uh, blame the serpent. So the blame game continued to the serpent. God asked Adam, Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent. God spoke to Adam, then he spoke to Eve and questioned them, but we don't see him question the serpent. There's no question for the serpent here. Uh, he moves and, and he begins talking to the serpent. He speaks directly to the serpent. Now, just a reminder here, the serpent was not a willing participant in the fall. Satan moved in and took possession of the serpent. Satan spoke through the serpent to Eve. But yet God comes and speaks to the serpent. And he speaks to the serpent first. Now notice what he says in verse 14. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Now as we read this, this does not mean that all animals are cursed and the snake is cursed more than the rest. As we look at this and we think about this, it is true that the animal kingdom will experience the effects of the curse. It says in Romans 8:22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the animal kingdom will experience decay. The animal kingdom will experience disease. The animal kingdom will experience age. And they ultimately will experience death. So the animal kingdom will experience the results or the effects of the curse, but the animal kingdom itself was not cursed. The way this is structured in the, in the Hebrew language here, this phrase, uh, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. The Hebrew structure of this phrase carries the idea that the snake is selected out of that group, that the snake himself or itself is the one that is cursed, not any of the other livestock, but the snake, and the snake only is the one that is cursed. Now, as you think about this, the snake has to be the most hated and feared of all God's creation. Several people, when we were moving through creation, and we start talking about slithering things, Several people said, hey, thanks for not talking about snakes when you talked about slithering things. And as we look at this, they're not here this morning. They knew where we would be. When I was a kid, my mom, my grandma thought it was a good idea for, to buy me this card collection. And this card collection were cards about this size, and they had photographs of different animals in the world. And every month, they would send me about 10 of these cards. And I collected them, and there were probably about 500 cards in the end. And for a while, I would get those and just put them in the pile. I never sorted them. But as, you, as they come, you sorted them uh, by what 
animal they were, whatever place in the kingdom they were, if they were mammals or, or reptiles or amphibians or fish or whatever. So you sorted them by that way, and you could just look and, and follow through. It was a great, great gift. And I put all of those in a pile and then finally decided to sort them. And one day my mom came in, and she decided she was going to help me sort them. And she looked at the first one, and she goes, oh, look, a wildebeest. And then she looked at the second one, and she said, oh, a king cobra. I'm done. The photograph was enough to get her to stop doing anything. To help. And she walked around the rest of the day shaking. So I didn't have the heart to tell her that I was the one who broke the window because was, she was already struggling. That is exactly the effect that snakes have. They are despised. They are despised above any other creature. Now notice the curse continues, and it says in verse 14, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. It appears that prior to this, that snakes had legs. Now, there's no proof of that that we have, but it appears that, as he says, on your belly you shall go. This was what he was going to be doing from this time forward, continuing on from here. And as we think about snakes, that's exactly the way they go. That's exactly the way they travel. And as you watch some of those shows on snakes, they have those sidewinder snakes that, that go sideways. Other snakes slither this way. But on their belly, they go. And it changes, uh, but they're still on their belly. It says... And the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This thought here is an old adage speaking of defeat. Think about that for a moment. When you are driving a car and the people are behind you, you say, eat my dust. That's what you do when you come through Clayton anyway. So this is a picture of defeat. This is the idea of defeat. And the serpent is in that place, brought down to that lowest level of existence. Now notice as this verse continues, it says, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This curse is a curse that's not going to end. This is a curse that's going to continue. And it's a curse that's going to continue even into the millennial kingdom. When Christ comes and the garden is reestablished and heaven is on earth again and paradise is on earth again and Christ rules from the earth, even during that thousand-year reign of Christ, there will be snakes. Isaiah 65, 25 says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The wolf is a carnivore. He's going to go back to eating vegetation like they did in the garden before the fall. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. This curse is going to be an everlasting curse that's going to take place here. So, 
I can't help but ask the question, why? The snake was not a willing participant. The other three participants were participants. You see the curse on Satan. You see the curse on the woman. You see the curse on the man. They all three participated in the fall willingly. And yet this snake was an innocent bystander who got sucked in. Why is this curse on him? The snake becomes a symbol. The snake is a permanent reminder to us of the judgment that God has placed on Satan. Just as the rainbow is a permanent reminder to us that God will never again destroy the earth by water. Every time we see the rainbow, it's a reminder of that. One time I was a Schwann's man in Granby, Colorado, and I walked into this house, and amazing rainbow, I mean full color over the mountains, full color. I mean, not, not just a glimmer, you know, where you kind of, uh, hold your tongue right. That's a rainbow. This was perfect, perfect rainbow. And I walked into this house, I mean, I stood in the yard by the truck, and I just looked at it for a while. It's like, man, that's just, that's just amazing. Walked into the house, and the kids and the, and the family, they're all at the sliding glass window, and they're looking at the rainbow, and they're like, man, that's a perfect rainbow. And they asked me the question. They said, do you know what the rainbow means? I do. But you know, there are so many people out there who have a different meaning for the rainbow. So before I spoke, I hesitated. What does this family think the rainbow's about? Do I shut them down right now? And what do I do here? And the little boy says, that rainbow means that God will never destroy the earth with flood again. And I said, amen, little brother. That's exactly what that means. But you know, there's so many who have rainbows and they mean different things and they see them and it means something else to them. But God put the rainbow in the sky to remind us of that promise. The snake reminds us that Satan has received his judgment, that Satan is destroyed. And I don't know if you think that when you see a snake. Oftentimes we jump and, and run the other way and we scream, Darcy, go kill it. Uh, that's sometimes what happens. But the snake is to be that reminder that Satan has been destroyed. You know, as we look at the snake, the snake and Satan are permanently associated together. As we live in a society now, there are so many so much more emphasis on snakes. And when you find satanic worship, snakes are usually involved. They are usually there. Revelation 12, verse 9 says this, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down into the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. The snake is connected with Satan. 
and this curse is on the serpent. Now, as we move to verse 15, we don't see really a, a change here. We don't see a, a change, but, but this curse begins to focus not on the serpent, but this curse now focuses on Satan himself. Uh, as we think about Satan, we know that Satan was the one who originally rebelled against God. Satan was the one who originally brought sin into God's creation. It was perfect before Satan's rebellion. Satan sought to exalt himself and make himself equal with God. We read about this in Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights, the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. This is attributed to Satan and him being the one who shared this. He was a created angel, created by God, more beautiful than any other. And he had pride. And he saw himself as one that needed to be exalted even with God. To be equal with God was what he saw himself. We saw there in Revelation 12 that Satan rebelled and one-third of God's angels followed him. So he didn't do this rebellion and get kicked out by himself. There were one-third of the angels that, that bought into this and they rebelled against God with Satan, and they were kicked out of heaven. As we look here in Genesis 3, it almost seems like, like Satan's been successful. I mean, he took one-third of God's angels with him. True, that leaves two-thirds with God, but one-third of, of thousands and thousands and thousands of angels is a good number. And now all of a sudden, he has 100% of mankind following him. We read that angels can't procreate, but human beings can. He's recruited the first two, and they're going to multiply. And their kids are going to multiply, and their kids are going to multiply, and their kids are going to multiply. And pretty soon they'll have six and it's just going to be more and more. And Satan has Adam and Eve on his side now. It almost looks like Satan has won this battle. It almost looks like Satan now all of a sudden is in control. It almost looks like Satan has, has taken control of the garden and, and all of God's plans are ruined. Now what's going to happen? Glad you asked that question. Verse 15 says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity is a state of deep-seated ill will. That is the dictionary definition. Enmity means to be an enemy. Enmity is to have hatred towards someone. Enmity means 
there's conflict between two people. Now think about what just has happened. When Adam and Eve partook of the fruit and God entered into the garden, who did Adam and Eve hide from? Did they hide from Satan or did they hide from God? In all actuality, Adam and Eve made the decision to follow Satan and believe Satan's lie, and they chose to turn from God to follow Satan. When God came into the garden, they didn't rush to God. Instead, they fled from God. Where is the enmity now? It is between Adam and Eve and God. Satan has put enmity between Adam and Eve and God. There's a separation between mankind and God now. Satan has won. Satan is victorious. And God steps into the garden. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. You see, Satan is still not in control. God is still sovereign. God is still the Lord God. He is the sovereign creator. God's plan was not defeated. There was a wedge that was driven between Adam and Eve and God, but God was not defeated. And I've read the end of the book. God is never defeated. And you know, that's something that we can hang on to. God will never be defeated. When we are on God's side, we are on the winning side. He will never be defeated. Never be defeated. Ultimately, as we look at this, Satan failed in his efforts to overtake heaven, and Satan failed in his efforts to overtake earth as well. He is not the victor. He is not the victor. Verse 15 continues. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. As an angel, Satan is unable to procreate. He cannot do that. So he really doesn't technically have offspring. But as a result, of the depravity of man, which we saw with Adam and Eve. There are those who follow Satan. Jesus says this in John 8, 44, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning 
and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. These Sadducees and these Pharisees were in opposition to Christ. They were not following God. Instead, even though they thought they were following God, what they were ultimately doing was following Satan. And Satan says, you are just like your father. You're acting just like his offspring. This enmity between the followers of God and the followers of Satan is something that is real. It is something that continues. We read about it in the Old Testament. We see how they're opposed to God in the Old Testament, seeking to silence God's people throughout the Old Testament. We get to the New Testament. They're seeking to silence Jesus, just as we saw there in John 8, 44. They're enemies of Christ. We see it even today. It's all well and good until you start standing for Christ. And then the enemies come out of the woodwork and they're opposed to followers of Christ. You think about the Jewish nation who are God's chosen people. There's always enmity between those who are not God's people and God's people. This enmity continues. Constant enmity between those who follow God and those who follow Christ. Last night, we were coming home from the bowling alley, and I was talking to Daly about our movie, The uh, Evidence for Christ, The Case for Christ. And as I started, as she was talking about the movie and we were discussing the movie, I started to tell her about Lee Strobel. And she says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't tell me the end. Don't ruin it for me. So I had to be quiet. I want to let you in on the end of the story here. There is a little bit of a spoiler alert here. Due to the fall of mankind, mankind is going to spiral into this condition of utter depravity. We saw this in Genesis 3, verse 8. Just look up there for just a second. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. We talked last week how this is the condition. This is the result of complete depravity. Turning our back to God, rejecting God, running away from God. That is the condition of things before this curse here. But notice what it says. There will be enmity between your offspring and her offspring. 
right now, 100% of mankind is Satan's offspring. But this enmity is going to come. There are still going to be those who are born into depravity and be Satan's offspring. But there are going to be some who are going to be rescued. And they're going to be her offspring. Colossians 1, verse 13 says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, and He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Satan's offspring are born into that domain of darkness. But there's going to be one who comes into this world who's going to deliver us. And he's going to be able to transfer us from that domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. There's a transformation that's going to take place. It says in verse 15, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now notice how this goes from the seed into, or from the offspring or the seed into this personal pronoun. We've gone from that offspring to he. From her offspring to he. This individual is going to be born into the line of Eve. And he is going to be the one that will deliver her offspring, rescue them out of the domain of darkness, and bring them into the kingdom of the beloved Son. God does not tell Satan who he is. Satan's got to figure that out on his own. And as we move through the book of Genesis, as we move through the Old Testament, as we move into the New Testament, we see Satan at work trying to figure out who he is and stop him from his mission. Satan moves forward with all of his effort. It says there in verse 15, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This idea here of bruising his head. I love the way the NIV shares this. The NIV says he will crush your head. I don't know if you know this or not, but the best way to kill a snake is to smash his head. Best way. Uh, now that they have anti-lock brakes, you can't even run over them and smear them. We used to drive and slam on your brakes and drag over them. That'll kill them. But anti-lock brakes ruined that. I think the Snake Save a Snake Foundation came up with anti-lock brakes. The best way to kill a snake is to crush his head. He shall crush his head. And evidently when this 
head is crushed, the bruise to the heel will take place. A crushed head is fatal. A bruised heel is painful. We had this swimming hole that we used to go to called Tabawatch. Great diving hole if you're under six foot four. I found a rock at the bottom of it with my heel. I could not walk very well for about two months. That bruise was that bad. A bruised heel is awful, but a crushed head is fatal. Jesus went to the cross and he died crushing Satan's head because he brought reconciliation to man. He died on that cross. But you know, he was only dead for three days. And he rose again. Isaiah 53.5 says this, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Jesus, going to the cross, was a death blow for Satan. Romans 16, verse 20 says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Jesus went to the cross and Jesus crushed the head of Satan. Because of that, we have no reason to fear Satan. Because of that, Satan is defeated, just as God has promised. There's nothing that Satan can do to us that can undo what God has done for us. Now, I'm not saying that it's up to us to bind Satan. You hear people teach that. We don't read that in Scripture. Satan is defeated. Our commander-in-chief is God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's who we get our marching orders from. He's the one who's defeated Satan. He's the one who will bind Satan for a thousand years during the Millennial Kingdom. It's Him we report to. It's not us up to us to bind Satan. Satan is a defeated foe. So there you see it. The curse of the servant, uh, curse of the serpent, sorry, and the curse of Satan. Now you know why we only looked at the first two. Because <laughs> here it is, two o'clock. So what do we take home from this? What do we apply to our Sunday afternoon, to our Monday morning? 
You know, the first thing that we've got to take away from this is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we don't take anything else away from this study through Genesis, that's what we've got to take away. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So many things try to attack that, and if it breaks that down, then the rest of the book is empty. But if we hang on to that one truth, everything else we see stands the test of time. Because it is fact. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The second thing we can take away from this is that God was, and God is, and God will always be in full control. I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know what you're going through today. But the fact is there. God was in control. God is in control. God will be in control. It seems like Satan won. Maybe in your life right now, what you're struggling with, what you're going through, is so overwhelming for you, your shoulders can't even hold it up. God is in control. God is in control. And there are times that we need to remind ourselves that. There are days that we need to remind ourselves of that. And you know what? It is minute by minute at times we have to remind ourselves of that. There's nothing that's going on in your life right now that's a surprise to God. There's nothing going on right now that God says, whoops, I should have crossed that T and dotted that I, and that would have changed everything. God is in control. Yeah, but you know what? We sin. We screw up. We do things. That doesn't change the fact that God is in control. We need to make a U-turn and get back to Him and realize that He is in control. Satan is a defeated foe. It may seem like at times that Satan has the upper hand, <laughs> but he's just biding his time. He's just biding his time. He's doing all he can to upset the apple cart. God is, God was, and God will be in control. And Satan is defeated. I don't know where you are today in your life, but I want you to know that God loved you enough to send a Redeemer into this world for you. Satan left us in total depravity, not wanting God, not desiring God, not looking for God. In fact, running away from God and hiding from God. But next time we're together, we're going to see that even when it seems all is lost, God sent a Redeemer into this world to redeem us. And maybe you're here today, and for the first time, you realize your need for Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've been living in that cesspool of depravity, and you're ready to come out of that cesspool.
being in church is not going to help you come out of that cesspool. Only Jesus Christ can rescue you. If you would turn to Him today and you would ask Him to rescue you, He will rescue you. But you've got to believe that He is the one, the only one who can rescue you. You can't do it without Him. He's the only one. And so if you haven't turned to Christ yet in your life and you haven't trusted Him as your Lord and Savior, as your rescuer, I want to encourage you to do that today. Don't let today slip away without doing that. Let's pray.